Good morning, everyone. Morning, you hear me? Where's Chris? Where's Chris? Wasn't that a very good devotional? Excellent. I really appreciate that, Chris. It was very good. Thank you. Some other people in here said it was excellent as well. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Good to see all of you. Yeah, there definitely are more people here than I expected. It almost feels like one of those situations I want to raise my hand and see who came from the furthest away. <laughs> DJ, my brother-in-law. For anyone watching at home, he came from about... My parents came from the furthest away and DJ, yeah. You guys, probably the Jackmans. The roads were clear? No? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, we just celebrated communion. It's a wonderful... Um, way I believe this occurs that we can reflect on what Christ has done for us and so our hearts swell with thankfulness and appreciation for his sacrifice and then move into your word. It's almost as though uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper prepares us for the sermon. And so I pray, Lord, that we would um, just have hearts that anticipate hearing about Christ and what he's done for us. I pray as we continue to look this morning at the Davidic covenant that we look beyond these um, seeing Solomon in these verses to see your son, that we would be thankful for what he has done for us. Give us insight, Lord. Help me to communicate clearly. We believe all the covenants look forward to your son and what he has done for us. And so just use me as your vessel, Lord, that we would grow in our hearts for Christ, our love for him, our thankfulness for what he has done. Uh, I think of Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Let your word accomplish that work in our hearts of growing our faith in Christ, and, and I just thank you for uh, everyone who's tuning in. Thank you for being able to worship you um, in spirit for those people who aren't with us physically, and what a, what a blessing it is. It's a great privilege just to have your word before us and to have it wash over us, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's sermon is the true and greater son, the true and greater son. So we were in a series called Pursuing Wisdom, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about Solomon. And there were some times we were discussing him that I thought it would be interesting or beneficial to see how much greater Jesus is than him. And so because we developed so much familiarity with Solomon, we started this very brief little series that I'm going to call Greater Than Solomon, um, taken from the New Testament in Matthew 1 account. It's also in uh, other gospels besides this one matthew 12 42 jesus said the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and behold something greater is solomon something greater than solomon is here and so we have been considering those ways that jesus is greater than solomon we started in second samuel 7 because this is the first clear association between jesus and solomon i want to briefly review a few things from last sunday's sermon i said that there would not be as much direct application we would be dealing more with indicatives or statements or truths or realities than imperatives or commands. But I also said that I do think there's considerable indirect application because as we learn about Christ and what he's done for us, we can't help but want to obey him. I, don't think, I think it would only be the unbeliever who could learn about what Christ has done and not be moved to want to serve him. And Jesus himself said this, if you love me, you will obey me. 2 Samuel 7, it contains what's known as the Davidic covenant. And as I prayed, all the covenants have Christ in view. All of the covenants um, look to him, see him as the fulfillment of them. And so as we read these verses that on the surface appear 
to be about Solomon. We want to look past Solomon to see Jesus in them. So we could say that these verses are secondarily about Solomon, primarily about Jesus. Go ahead and pick up with me at verse 10. We did cover these first couple verses last week, I think verses 10 through 13, but I want to get a little momentum. Jesus, or um, God says to David, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Remember, David had wanted to make God a house. God said he would make David a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this was the major focus of last Sunday's sermon. It began with David being settled and restful in his palace, and he's disturbed that God doesn't have a house of his own, and so he asked to build this house for God. He receives permission from Nathan, who tells him to go forward and do so, but then Nathan later hears from God and is told that David should not do this. Instead, it is going to be David's son Solomon that is going to build this house, and we talked about that last week, that Solomon built the earthly, physical temple or house for God, but looking past that, in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. On the surface of Solomon and the physical earthly temple he built, but looking past that to Jesus, he's the one who built the true and greater heavenly spiritual temple or house for God known as the church. Now, one way, I would say an obvious way that we know this is looking past Solomon to Jesus is contained in the word forever, which occurs three times in these verses. Obviously, we know that when God is talking to David about his son, who's going to reign forever, that there was no way for Solomon to do that because Solomon couldn't live forever. So looking past Solomon to Jesus, this brings us to lesson one. Lesson one, Jesus is the true and greater son of part one, David. Jesus is the true and greater son of part one, David. So if I asked you, if I said, who is the son of David, what would you say? If I said, who is the son of David? You'd probably ask, are we talking uppercase S, son, or are we talking lowercase S, son, right? Are we talking about the son of David being Jesus, or are we talking about the son of David being Solomon? Son of David might be one of the most well-known messianic titles for Jesus. I'll just use a few examples from Matthew's gospel. The book of genealogy, Matthew 1, 1 begins this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it immediately calls him the son of David. Matthew 9, 27, two blind men followed Jesus, and they cried aloud. They said, have mercy on us, son of David. So they don't even call him Jesus. Matthew 20, 31, the crowd rebuked the two blind men, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Take your minds to the triumphal entry, which is that moment when Jesus was most clearly shown to be the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew 21, 9, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Right after the triumphal entry, Jesus enters the temple. Matthew 21, 15, the children cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Even the children knew Jesus was the son of David. Speaking to the religious leaders, Jesus asked them, Matthew 22, 41, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And so here's the point. Solomon is the son of David, but Jesus is the true and greater son of David. Now do something for me. In the middle of verse 11, look back there. 
At the words, I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Did this happen when David's son Solomon became king? Was he able to experience rest from all of his enemies? He was. If you are familiar with the early chapters of 1 Kings, when Solomon became king, it is a very violent time. And why is that? I mean, because all of these enemies of David's or enemies of Solomon end up being killed. You've got Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, Shimei. Now, I mention that because that's what happens right after the son of David, Solomon becomes king. But what happens when the greater son of David, Jesus, becomes king? What happens to all of his enemies? If you write in your Bible, I mean, they're all executed. You can circle the words, I will give you rest from all your enemies, and you can write Psalm 110.1. You can circle the words, I'll give you rest from all your enemies, and write Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This looks forward to Jesus. And so to spell it out very clearly, when Solomon became king and all of his enemies were defeated, that's prefiguring or foreshadowing what takes place or what will take place when Christ becomes king and all of his enemies end up being defeated. Look at the beginning of verse 14. God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And even before I go any further, when you look at these words, do they look like words that God would say to David about Solomon? Or do they look like words that would apply in an even greater sense to God's own son? I mean, this language, it looks basically like what God would say about Jesus. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. Jesus is the true and greater son of part two God. Jesus is the true and greater son of part two God. So in this verse, God says that he would be a father to Solomon. We know these words look past Solomon to Jesus. And we know that God has many sons, or we could say he has many sons and daughters. Every believer is a son or daughter of God. Elsewhere in Scripture, we have the angels themselves being called sons of God. But if we want to talk about these, again, if I was to say, you know, who is the son of God, you'd, you'd ask, are we talking uppercase S here? Or are we talking lowercase S? Are we talking about angels? Or are, we, or are we talking about Christians? Or are we talking about Jesus Christ himself, the son of God? So secondarily, these verses are describing that father-son relationship between God and Solomon, but primarily they're describing the father-son relationship between God and Jesus. Now, how do we know that? How can we look at this verse and know that it's applied in an even greater sense to Jesus than Solomon himself? Well, interestingly, this verse is even easier to determine that because, and these words might look familiar, because they're quoted for us in the New Testament. This one's easier because the New Testament does the work for us. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, or if you have a cross-reference Bible, it probably points out that the words, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and you can write Hebrews 1.5, or your Bible might point that out for you if it has references. So it's nice when you're reading the Old Testament. I mean, we know that the Old Testament is about Jesus. So you're reading a verse and sometimes you're wondering, is this about Jesus? Does this, does this go further or deeper than it appears to me on the surface? And it's nice when that's revealed because the New Testament quotes that Old Testament verse for you and shows you that it's applied to Jesus. And that's the case here. 
The New Testament lifts up this verse, or God, writing through the author of Hebrews, lifts up this verse, 2 Samuel 7, 14, and applies it to Jesus for us in Hebrews 1. So here, Hebrews 1, 5, to which of the angels, who are also called sons of God, as we've been talking about, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, and then here's the quote of 2 Samuel 7, 14, in Hebrews 1, 5, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So even though these words are about Solomon, they have their complete fulfillment in Christ. Now, before we look at the second half of verse 14, I want to explain why I want to give it so much attention. And it relates to something that took place uh, with our family a few weeks ago. We're having a nice conversation um, around the table, and one of the very, I think, reasonable questions that my children were asking was, how do we know the Bible is true? Or pretty close to that, how do we know that, that God wrote the Bible? And when children ask these questions, I think there are two mistakes that parents can make that we want to avoid. One of those mistakes is chastising our children, saying something to them like, how could you ask that? Or how could you think, you know, the Bible is not true? Or how could you doubt that God is the one who wrote the Bible through human authors? Or what a terrible thing for you to say. If you say something like that to your children, then you can almost be guaranteed of what? That they're not going to ask you any other questions again. They're going to be concerned. They're going to have legitimate, honest questions that they want answered, but they're going to be afraid that they'll be in trouble if they ask anything else like that, and so you won't hear from them again. The second mistake that we can make is not answering their question. As parents, it is our responsibility. I mean, and it's not to say that we're going to know the answers to all of their questions right off. No parent knows the answer to everything that their children could ask. But we do have a responsibility, if we don't know the answer at that moment, to tell our children, let me go find out, and then I will get back to you. And so my, my children were wondering this, and they've wondered this before. You know, how do we know that the Bible is not just some other book? How do we know that God is the author of it? And so if we go to that question and think about it, what I would say is the the Bible is the record of history in advance, or it writes history in advance for us, and there's no way that man could do that. It's only God writing something through human authors that history would be able to be recorded before it happened. Now, what I want you to focus in on, one way that we know that, or one part of the history in advance, relates specifically to Jesus and all of the prophecies about him. So, you've heard me say many times I mean, maybe just let me ask you, why do we believe Jesus is the Messiah? Bad answers would be because he changed our lives. That could be true, and I think for many of us is true. A bad answer would be because that's what my parents told me. Another bad answer would be because that's what seems right to us or feels right to me. And why are those bad answers? Because those are the exact same things that every other religion can say. So all those things can be true, but the reason that we believe Jesus is the Messiah is because he fulfilled all of those prophecies, or he fulfilled history in advance. No other religion can claim that. If all you had was the book of Jonah, and I mean this, then you have all the evidence you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we get the other 30, uh, 38 books of the Old Testament, but if all you had was just the book of Jonah— you have enough to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It was written seven centuries before Jesus came, and the language of Jonah's death, when he's thrown in the sea, the language of his burial for three days and three nights in the fish, the language of his, if you want to call it resurrection, 
when he's, when he's vomited out of the fish up onto dry land on the third day is so strong that you'd almost have to deny that that is about Jesus to not see him in it. And that's written seven centuries before he came. And that's why when Jesus was asked for a sign, they said, reveal to us, give us a sign that you're Messiah. He said what? Matthew 12, 39, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus staked all of his credibility as the Messiah just on that account with Jonah. In other words, if that's all you had, then you would have enough evidence to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why is that? Because seven centuries before Jesus came, you have this dramatic, I don't even want to say picture or type, but sign of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through that prophet. But we get so much more than that. We don't just get the book of Jonah, we get the entire Old Testament. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, or beginning at the beginning of the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the Old Testament is about Jesus, and as, as we see so much written about him centuries before he came, it reveals God wrote the Bible. Now, why am I telling you this, or what does this have to do with 2 Samuel? The second half of verse 14 is one of those places that gives us dramatic revelation of Christ before he came. Look with me at the second half of verse 14. It says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Let me read this one more time. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So let's look at the surface reading about Solomon the secondary understanding of this verse, and then we'll look at the primary understanding and see Jesus through this. So part of God's promise to David is that God is going to treat David's son Solomon like a son or like a father would treat his son. In other words, when Solomon does something wrong, God is going to be a father to him and he's going to do what with him? Just like we do with our sons. He's going to discipline him if he commits iniquity. And that's exactly what God did with Solomon. He, qu- he committed iniquity God disciplined him. We read about Solomon's idolatry a few months ago. We'll look at it again a little later in the sermon. And if we read a little further, we would see, at least if we read a little further in those sermons from a few weeks or months ago, we would see that God did discipline Solomon and take many of the tribes away from him. So it's pretty easy to understand how this verse applies to Solomon. But it's hard to understand how it applies to Jesus for what reason? We know that Jesus didn't commit iniquity. We know that God never had to discipline Jesus. But the truth is, these words apply to Jesus in an even greater way than they apply to Solomon, and this brings us to lesson two. Jesus suffered for iniquity and was disciplined with the rod and stripes due to men. Lesson two, Jesus suffered for iniquity and was disciplined with the rod and stripes due to men. Now, even before I tell you anything else about this verse applying to Jesus, if you just look at the language of it, committing iniquity, disciplining him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, doesn't some of that language sound familiar? Doesn't, doesn't the second half of this verse practically sound like a combination of different parts of Isaiah 53, which is one of the strongest messianic passages in the Old Testament, 
prophesying of the substitutionary atonement of Christ or prophesying of him suffering for iniquity on the cross for our sins. Let me read some of the verses from Isaiah 53 so you can hear the parallelism with verse 14. Isaiah 53, 5, he's wounded for our transgressions, he's bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like have gone all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now that has much of the same language as verse 14 does. Now the obvious question, how can this apply to Jesus? Because it says when he commits iniquity, and we know Jesus never committed any iniquity. The solution is the second half of the verse of or the second half of verse 14 can or some commentators I learned this past week think should be translated as this when he suffers for iniquity I shall chasten him with the rod due men and with the stripes due to the sons of men and let me tell you how I came to this understanding so a few years ago I realized that I was going too slowly through verses I think I've shared this before so, and much of it had to do with looking at too many commentaries and wanting to add all the, all the things that I thought were pretty wonderful that I was learning in these commentaries. And so it had me kind of crawling through verses, and I felt at times like perhaps missing the bigger picture. So I decided to limit the number of commentaries I would consider to four, unless there was a verse or passage that I thought I didn't understand well enough from those four commentaries. Most passages or verses in Scripture, four commentaries is plenty to develop a good enough understanding of what God wants us to learn. Now, in this account, with verse 14 here, I looked at all the verses, or excuse me, I looked at all the commentaries that I had on it in my office, which happened to be over 15. And then I looked at some commentaries that were online as well. And many of the commentaries made the same point that this verse can, or some commentaries said should, have a different understanding than we see in our English translations. I'm going to share two of the examples with you. Now, I know this will sound a little technical, but I do want to invite you to really try to tune in. First, Adam Clark, this is what he said about verse 14. He said, the chief reason it is so frequently missed that verse 14 is referring to Jesus is owing to our improper translation, or he means English translations. The Hebrew words do not properly signify what we read in English. It is certain that the words to commit iniquity should be translated as to suffer for iniquity. The verse being made clear now, we are prepared to abolish our translation of he commits iniquity and adopt the true translation, which is even in his suffering for iniquity. The Messiah will be made more clear or manifest from the whole verse if we translate it as I will be his father, he shall be my son, even in his suffering for iniquity, I shall chasten him with the rod of men, or with the rod due to men, and with the stripes that are due to the children of men. And then Adam Clark concludes saying, this translation is well supported by Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. So just to make it a little clearer, Adam Clark is saying that the words commits iniquity can be better translated as suffers for iniquity. And then second, J. Vernon McGee, he said something similar in his commentary. He wrote, But if he committed iniquity, that is, when iniquity is laid upon him, when your sin and my sin were put upon him, it is with his stripes that we are healed. 
He died on the cross for you and me. And so this means the verse, it stands as this very strong prophecy about Christ and his substitutionary atonement for us. 1,000 years before Jesus came, he suffered for our iniquity. Our guilt is laid on him. He's chastened with the rod that's due to men. He's disciplined with the stripes that are due to the sons of men. When Jesus died on the cross, he was imputed with the sin of all believers throughout history. Every single person who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, all those looking forward to him coming throughout the Old Testament, all believers in the New Testament looking back in faith on him coming, had their sins imputed to him at that moment on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Isaiah 53.6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.11, he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53.12, he bore the sin of many. So my point is, when my children ask me, and they say, well, how do we know, or how can we believe the Bible or be confident in it? To me, this is one of those reasons, this verse is one of those reasons we can be confident. We see this tremendous revelation of Christ's substitutionary atonement for us, for our sins, 1,000 years before he came. Even, and here's the other thing, even this prophecy is made, even when there were other prophecies like Isaiah 53 is one of the ones about him suffering, but other prophecies about him being this ruling and reigning king that would almost seem to conflict with it, where it wouldn't even make sense. Here's my point. It wouldn't even, this prophecy was being made when it wouldn't even make sense for people to believe that a, the Messiah was going to come and die. Why was it so difficult during Jesus' earthly ministry for people to believe that he would die? Because there were so many prophecies about a Messiah who was going to, to rule and to reign and be loved and adored. But at the same time, there was also Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and they found these to be mutually exclusive, incompatible. But following Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, we can look back and we can say that 1,000 years before Jesus came, there were prophecies like this one descriptive of what he would suffer on our behalf. And to me, man can't do that. Man can't write something like that. Man can't write history in advance. Man can't be right 100% of the time. I mean, you know, someone closes their eyes and throws darts at a dartboard. They might hit it once in a while, but they're not going to be 100% like God. And so people can make false prophecies, and occasionally they can say something that's right. More often than not, they end up being wrong, and then have explanations, you know, and excuses and so forth, but not with God. He writes it out very clearly, very, very detailed, very thoroughly, very descriptively about what's going to happen with his son centuries or a millennium before he came. That should give us considerable confidence in God's word, in the Bible, in him being the one to write it. And this is when those sins were imputed to him, when he experienced the separation from his father, Matthew 27, if we take our minds back to our sins being imputed to Christ, he experienced a separation from his father, and in Matthew 27, 46, he cries out with a loud voice, and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did Jesus say this? Because he owned our sins. He was bearing them. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says he became sin for us. He feels this separation from the father when jesus died for our sin or here's here's one of the things we'll say 
that Jesus died for our sins, and that's true. But we could equally say that Jesus died for his sin because it's as though he owned those sins. He received them. They were put to his account. We, we use imputation. It's a financial or accounting term with ledgers, and it's as though it's moved from our ledger to his ledger. It's as though they became his sin. When our sins were imputed to him or put to his account, they were literally his sins. He experiences this separation. And so the question becomes, Jesus feels forsaken or separated from his father when he's on the cross at that moment. Did he continue to feel forsaken from his father? And interestingly, the answer to that is in verse 15. So if you look at 2 Samuel 7, verse 15, God says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. If you're looking past Solomon to see Jesus, God says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. He will not stay forsaken from me as I took it from Saul, whom I will put away or whom I put away from before you. Again, Adam Clark and other commentaries I could give you also see Jesus in this verse. Adam Clark said, God promises that even amidst the sufferings of this son, as the sufferings, referring to him suffering on the cross for our sins, as the sufferings would be for the sins of others and not for his own, the Father's mercy should still attend him or remain with him, nor should the Father's favor be ever removed from this king, referring to Jesus, as it had been removed from Saul. And this brings us to lesson three. Jesus retained his Father's favor. Jesus retained his Father's favor. We know throughout Jesus' earthly life that he had the favor of his Father. The number of times, I mean, the voice cries out from heaven, whether it's the baptism, whether it's the transfiguration, with the Father expressing his favor toward the Son. But then at that moment when Jesus says, that he is forsaken from the Father, you could wonder, does he still have the Father's favor? Two dramatic events reveal that he still had it. First, the resurrection. The Father raises the Son from the dead. Romans 6, 4, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And then second, the Father receives the Son when the Son ascends to heaven. Acts 1, 9, when Jesus has said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That cloud is the Shekinah glory of God, signifying that the Father receives the Son when He ascends to heaven. Now let's move. So we're kind of doing this one reverse. We're kind of with with the other verses. We generally we generally looked at Jesus first, or we looked at Solomon first, and then Jesus. But this time we kind of looked at Jesus first, and now I want to look at Solomon in this verse, so that we can see some wonderful application for ourselves first. To appreciate this. I need to put yourself in David's place, let's say in 2 Samuel 6, or let's say before God made this covenant with him. So just imagine none of this that we've read about has occurred with David. And we're familiar with certain things that David had no familiarity with at this point. We're familiar with the Messianic line, which is to say we're familiar with the Davidic covenant, which is to say we are familiar that, the, that God is going to bring the Messiah into the world through a descendant of David. But David didn't know that. It's very familiar to us, would have been completely unfamiliar to him. David didn't know 
that the Messiah would come from one of his descendants. And not only did he not know that, David didn't even know that his son would sit on the throne. And that might sound hard to believe, but let me ask you this. David is the second king of the nation of Israel. How many kings up to this point have had their son sit on the throne? Let me ask that. How many kings up to this point have had their son sit on the throne? Zero. David has never seen a king of Israel with a son sitting on the throne. So God makes the Davidic covenant with David when it would be very easy for David to think that his son will not sit on the throne. Or even if his son sits on the throne, if his son messes up, then his son's son will not sit on the throne. Or another way to say it is, David knew better than anyone, because he watched what happened with Saul, that it was not beyond God to prevent the current king from having his son sit on the throne. Or another way to say it is to use the language in 2 Samuel 7, David knew better than anyone that God had no problem whatsoever introducing a new dynasty switching out the current dynasty or house associated with the throne with a new or different one because that's all david had seen that's all he had experienced he had no guarantee that even his son and so david looks and he sees this tremendous man his best friend jonathan who doesn't get to receive the throne and david could easily wonder well my son receives the throne what if he does something wrong then the throne will be removed from him Hold on to this and then turn to 1 Kings 11 so I can show you something. The Davidic covenant might seem like a wonderful promise to us, but it's even bigger than it seems because of David's confidence that his son or his son's son might not sit on the throne. Look at 1 Kings 11. So it's one book to the right. We should be familiar with this. We, we studied it a few months ago. Solomon broke the three main rules that God had for kings. So now we are looking at David's first son to sit on the throne, Solomon. And we know that Solomon broke the three rules that God made for kings, which is what? Don't do what? Don't multiply horses, wives, or wealth. We know that Solomon broke all three of those commands not to multiply horses, wives, or wealth. And not only that, he also engaged in idolatry that's almost unimaginable in the rest of of the Old Testament. Few people, perhaps only Manasseh or maybe Ahab, can compare with the idolatry that Solomon engaged in. Take a look at verse 4. Solomon's old. I'll read this quickly because we're familiar with it. His wives turned his heart away after other gods. Verse 5, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sinonians, Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, didn't wholly follow the Lord like David did. Verse 7, he built high places for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, Moloch, most well known for, this, for children being sacrificed to worship him. And now you've got Solomon worshiping that God or that idol along with all the other idols he's worshiping. And then verse 8, he did this for all of his foreign wives. Now, let me get you to think about something. What did Saul do to lose the throne? What did Saul do to lose the throne? He offered a sacrifice that Samuel was supposed to offer. He actually offered it on the right day. It was a sacrifice that was supposed to be offered on the seventh day. Saul even waited until the seventh day to offer it, but it was one that Samuel was supposed to offer. And perhaps because he was reminded in chapter 15 that the throne had been taken from him, you could also say that he didn't destroy all of the Amalekites like he was supposed to. Now, if we're honest, 
doesn't seem like Saul did anything particularly terrible to lose the throne. Not really. I mean, to me, I kind of look, and I'm, I mean, I'm not God. I suppose much of it had to do with Saul's heart, how unrepentant he was, his failure to acknowledge his sin, like David, who sinned much worse than Saul did, but David was repentant for it. I just kind of look, and I think, you know, Saul wasn't that bad, and he still lost, lost the throne. Now, based on what we read about Solomon, or based on what we know from our weeks or months studying him, it wouldn't be too much to say that Solomon was exponentially worse than Saul. If anyone should have lost the throne, it's Solomon. But now look at verse 12. For the sake of David, your father, I won't take the throne from me, basically. Verse 13, however, I won't take all the kingdom away. I'll give it to one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, which means because of the covenant I made with him. Look at verse 32. He shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David. Verse 34, nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I'll make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant. Four times in these verses, and there are other places I could show you. I just wanted to, didn't want you to have to flip around too much. God says this, that he allowed the throne to remain with Solomon despite all of his terrible sin because of the covenant that God made with David. Solomon deserved judgment, but he receives this grace and this mercy because of David, and this brings us to lesson four. We receive God's favor because of the true and greater son of David. We receive God's favor because of the true and greater son of David. So to really spell it out, Solomon received favor because of whom? Solomon received favor because of whom? David, his father. We receive favor because of the true and greater son of David. If you think about the situation with Solomon, it's very tempting to say something like, this is unfair, why should Solomon benefit from David? Solomon sinned terribly, he should be punished. And yes, this is unfair. Solomon did sin terribly. If, if it says that Solomon worshipped all of the gods that his wives worshipped, and he had 700 wives and then 300 concubines, I mean, he sh- and, and, I, and you're to be executed under the old covenant for idolatry, I mean, Solomon should have been killed more times than I can count. And so he deserved judgment beyond anything we can imagine. But instead, he's shown unspeakable mercy. He has shown unspeakable grace. He's shown this tremendous favor from God because of someone else. Solomon has shown tremendous favor, not because of anything he's done to earn it or deserve it, but because of someone else. Solomon did not deserve this grace or favor, but that's what makes it grace. Grace is unearned or unmerited favor. He deserved death, but he received grace and mercy because of another. And it's the same for us who are in Christ. We deserve death. We receive grace and mercy because of another. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Here is the grace and mercy. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so because of the true and greater son of David, Jesus Christ, we have received favor from God. And I'll leave you with this wonderful thought. One of the things that encourages me about this, you can look 
at the way that God treated Solomon, and you can be bothered by it because you think that he deserves to be punished. But here's the thing. When we see God's faithfulness to these terribly unfaithful people, and we can even back up from Solomon to David himself, because you could wonder, why didn't David lose the throne? And I've, I've been asked this. I've asked this myself. If Saul loses the throne because he offers a sacrifice he shouldn't offer and he doesn't exterminate all the people he's supposed to exterminate, yet David commits adultery and murder, why would Saul, why would Saul lose the throne but David didn't? And there's only one answer, and that's God's faithfulness to the covenant that he made with David. And so one of the things that's really beautiful when you see the faithfulness of God to unfaithful people is it should give each of us confidence that God will be faithful to us and that it doesn't rest on our unfaithfulness. And, all, and that's not to excuse sin. That's not to say that sin doesn't have consequences, but it is to say this. My confidence in God's faithfulness to me rests in what Christ has done for me. I know that I am shown favor, I am shown grace and mercy from God because of another, because of what Jesus has done for me. If I thought that I had to earn God's favor, then I know all I've really earned is his judgment or his punishment because of my sin. And so if God was going to be faithful to Solomon because of David, think of how much more faithful God is going to be to us because of the true and greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you, thank you for your faithfulness to your covenants. We thank you that there were men who were terrible, who sinned terribly, who disobeyed, who rebelled against you, whether it's Solomon or whether it's others, but you were still faithful to them because of the promises that you made. And we think of the new covenant. We think of the promise that you've made through your son, Jesus Christ, that if we're faithful and just to confess our sins, or if, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. What a blessing that is to think about the promises that have been made through your word to us because of what Jesus has done. Thank you that it doesn't rest on our obedience or our faithfulness to you, but on the obedience of your son and his faithfulness to you and what he has done. If we had to rely on ourselves, Lord, we would have to be so discouraged and hopeless, but we can be so encouraged and hopeful because of Jesus and because of your faithfulness. So we thank you for that, Lord, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.